thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching of it. Heavenly Father, as we come once again to sit underneath your word, we pray that you would help us to sit beneath it humbly, that we would receive it with eagerness, with diligence, with discernment, and Lord, that you would use your word to expand our minds so that we would have greater, truer, and more accurate thoughts about you. And in having those greater, truer, and accurate thoughts, we would be more humbled and more put in our proper place around your throne. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For well over a century, the earth and all its inhabitants and residents enjoyed laying claim to the title, the center of the galaxy. It was thought that all the stars, all the planets, even the sun was centered on the earth. They had to rotate. They had to make the long journey around earth. Earth just got to hang out and sit in its place of galactic prominence. If the universe were a show, It was thought that the Earth was the star and every other celestial body was merely a supporting actor in its show. Well, that was the dominant thought until 1543, when a man named Nicholas Copernicus had the audacity to use facts and logic and science to show that the Earth is not the center. He decided to put Earth in its literal and metaphoric place. And what his research demonstrated is that the previous astronomical theory had mistakenly given the title, the center of the galaxy, to the wrong object. It did not belong to the Earth. It belonged to the Sun. And we call that today the Copernican Revolution. And what he did was he kicked off a revolution in which the study of astronomy took a leap forward, discovering that not only is Earth not the center of the universe, it is just an average-sized planet that rotates around the Sun in the Milky Way galaxy, which is just one of potentially billions of galaxies that are probably even bigger than the one that Earth is an average-sized planet in. And the more astronomers had followed in the path of Copernicus, the more we've built telescopes and looked and seen and seen further, the more we've realized, yes, he was exactly right. Earth and its residents are not the center of the galaxy. Well, what Copernicus did to put the Earth in its place John does in Revelation 4 to put us in our place by showing us the throne room of heaven, by showing us the people in it, the one seated on the throne, the activity of heaven, John puts us in our place. And we often need this because one of our greatest struggles is that we believe in the me-centricity of the universe. Life is about my happiness, my comfort, my plans. And when you come into my gravitational orbit, you better start revolving around me or else. You know, it dawned on me the other day uh, as I was studying this that all my disagreements with my wife and my kids and, and anyone who comes in my orbit is that they have not sufficiently grasped the me-centricity of the universe. And so I realized that I need to do more work and speak louder and with more passion to show them that life goes well when you orbit around me and not other things. I hope you realize that that is, not, that is how things go, but that's not how things should go. It does not go well. And what Revelation 4 presents to us is a biblical Copernican revolution. In Revelation 4, John holds up what heaven is like, and he says, it's not about you. It's all about him. He bumps us off center, just like Copernicus did for the earth. And Jesus taught his disciples this very lesson in one of his prayers. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, means 
that there is a way things are done in heaven that provide us with a model or pattern for how we are to do things here and now on earth. And you can think of it like how a kid might learn to draw. So my kids use this program on YouTube called Art for Kids Help. It's a great you know, YouTube station where there's a professional illustrator who has videos teaching you to draw anything, dragons, Star Wars characters, superheroes, you know, whatever kids are drawing these days. And all you do is you follow him step by step, pen mark by pen mark. And when it's all said and done, if you followed his instructions properly, because he's the professional, you should have a, a real looking dragon or a, a lightsaber or a Marvel superhero. And in a sense, when we get a glimpse into the throne room of God, as John shows it to us, he's saying, here's how it is in heaven. This is what it's like in heaven so that we can imitate that pattern here on earth. And here's what we see and here's the pattern we're to follow. As the earth is centered on the sun, so our lives are made to be centered on God because heaven is a God-centered place. As it is in heaven, God-centered. So it is to be here on earth, God-centered. And we see the God-centeredness of heaven displayed in a couple of ways. One of them is in the fact that the redeemed residents of heaven are centered on God. The redeemed residents of heaven are all about the glory and worth of God. Look at verse four with me. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the throne were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. So John points out, first of all, the location of these 24 elders on these 24 thrones. They are arranged in a centered sort of way around that one throne above all thrones that we looked at last week and the one seated on that throne. And what we're going to see as we go through Revelation 4 and 5 is that there is this intentional arrangement of concentric circles in Revelation 4 and 5. Whenever you you drop a rock in a pond or in water, you always notice this concentric circle effect. You drop the rock and there's this big center circle and everything kind of ripples out from there. That's what Revelation 4 and 5 kind of gives us a picture of. Everything ripples out and reverberates from that central throne. So in the center of heaven is God on his throne above all thrones. And then that next concentric circle is these 24 lesser thrones with 24 elders arranged and looking at and facing and giving glory to the one seated on the throne. Well, that's our location. But who are these 24 elders sitting on these 24 thrones? This is where it gets a little bit more confusing. And some people have joked that if you take all the numbers that are in the book of Revelation, if you've read through the book, you know there are a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation, and you add those numbers together in Revelation, it equals the amount of different interpretations regarding the book of Revelation, okay? That's one of those, those keys to unlock the book of Revelation, to add the numbers together and you found the amount of interpretations given the book. Revelation is a rich and rewarding book to study, but it is also a difficult book to study. I'm in over my head. And there are many places where it's, it is very hard to be specific and exact and certain about what John is showing us. This, this is the nature of an apocalyptic vision. And so there are good and godly Bible interpreters that will take different views. You might take a different view than me. And so with that, we need to avoid two extremes with the book. One extreme is we throw up our hands in frustration and say, I'll never know this book. I'll never get the spiritual nutrients that this book wants to give me because I, I just can't stomach it. The other extreme is to speak with such a dogmatic certainty and exactness about this or that interpretation that if you disagree with me, you have you know, the brain the size of a pig and you can see as well as a blind cavefish or something like that. 
That's not how we should come to the book of Revelation. And so what I'm going to give you, many times you hear me say, in my humble opinion, or this is as best as I can see, or as I understand, this is what it is. So what about the 24 elders? What do they represent? Well, as best as I can understand, in my humble opinion, and I have a pretty often reliably humble opinion, (laughs) the church in heaven, or these 24 elders represent the church in heaven. They represent the redeemed residents of heaven, the, the people of God. And to be even more specific, they represent God's redeemed people throughout all the history of redemption. Now, how do I get that? Well, it seems to me that the significance comes from the number 24. The numbers in Revelation are often significant. Seven for fullness. Four kind of represents kind of creation in the four corners of the earth. Well, 24 comes from combining two things. The 12 tribes of Israel, which represent the people of God in the Old Testament, and 12 disciples, 12 apostles, the people of God in the New Testament. And what do we see with these these two groups coming together? We see that all of them are united in the fact that they are centered on God and they're sitting together on these 24 thrones. The redeemed people of God throughout all of redemptive history are one unified people centered on one unified thing, the glory and worth of the God who redeemed them. The people of God throughout all history whether before Christ or after Christ, are not separate. They don't sit on different planes. There's not a hierarchy in the people of God. They are all one in Christ Jesus, centered on the same thing, the Father. So as the church in heaven has this perfect unity because they are centered around the same thing, what does that mean for what it should be for the church here on earth? We should pray for that kind of unity that unites us around the same thing. We should pursue it in love and service to one another in focusing on the same thing. And the church should seek to protect that unity against all that would threaten to divide. As the church is united in heaven, so the church should be united on earth. And this picture of the church in heaven perfectly united around the same thing should fill us with a hope and anticipation. All the personal preferences, all the doctrinal disagreements, all the relational strife, all the spiritual gossip that comes and hinders true unity will not accompany us in heaven. It will be gone. There will be a perfect unity in heaven because everyone will finally be Presbyterian. Yeah, just kidding. I'm only mostly joking, okay? There will be an invincible unity in the throne room of heaven because the Copernican revolution in our hearts that has started at conversion will finally have its full effect that God will be the center of everything. There will be a glorious self-forgetfulness in heaven where it's not about me, it's not about myself, it's not about I. Instead, it's all about God. And instead of trying to get people to rotate and orbit around my little kingdom of self, we'll be perfectly oriented around the king and his kingdom. And so that should give us a sense of hope and anticipation no matter what struggles and strifes we have here when it comes to unity. That has an expiration date. And in heaven, it does not exist. So that's their identity. Notice also what they're wearing. It says they're clothed in white garments and they have golden crowns on their head. What does this mean? All the stains, all the blemishes of sin are gone. All the shame, all the guilt that we think feels makes us exposed has been covered. And for all eternity, we are forever perfectly clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Spotless, unblemished, <laughs> undefilable. But here's another joy of heaven with these white garments. The righteousness of Christ will not only be our forever clothing, but the character represented in that righteous garment will be our forever character. All your struggles right now, 
with anger and selfishness and competition and envy and rivalry, all of that will be gone because you will forever not only be clothed in Christ's righteousness, but you will be transformed to be like him as he is, perfectly conformed to his character in heaven. Heaven will be a place full of love and joy and righteousness because all the things that tempt us and cause us to struggle are gone. Well, in addition to their white garments, they have golden crowns on their head. So the church throughout history and even in various areas of the world right now is one that is despised and rejected and scorned and ostracized and persecuted. Think specifically of who John has been writing to in those seven letters, what they're facing. They have no real social standing in the eyes of the world. They're, they're kind of seen as the lowest of the low. And yet here in heaven, the church wears a crown on their head. They share in the rule and honor and victory of the king and his kingdom. They have a place, not of lowly status. They're not poor in the eyes of heaven. No, they are rich in grace as the redeemed people of God. They get to share in this blessing and honor, which is something far beyond what they can imagine now here on earth. Now you could look at these 24 elders and you could think, wow, these 24 elders must be a big deal. I mean, look how close they are to that throne above all thrones. Look at the fact that they're on thrones. Look at, they get to wear white garments. Look at these beautiful clothing they have. And look at the crowns that they have on their heads. I mean, I don't know about you, but everyone who I know who has a crown is a pretty big deal here on earth. And yet, look what they do with their crowns in verse 10. It says the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will that existed and were created. What do they do with all this honor and reputation? They don't shine their crown so their gold sparkles a little bit more than their neighbors. They don't go around showing it off to the other people in the circles behind them in heaven, saying, hey, look where you don't get to sit. No, they cast their crowns down before the one who is seated on the throne. Why do they do that? Because having seen more of the breadth and length and height and depth of the majesty of the one seated on the throne, they realize what we so often struggle to grasp here on earth. It's not about me. It's all about him. And it's all because of him. The thrones they have, they know is only because of the one seated on the throne in front of them. The white garments that they wear, they know is only because of the grace of the one seated on the throne in front of them. And the golden crowns they wear, they know is only because of the victory of the one seated on the throne in front of them. They have this perfect heavenly perspective that is centered on God and not self. So may it be so with us on earth as it is in heaven. Well, next, we see the God-centeredness of heaven displayed in the fact that the angelic residents of heaven are centered on God. Look with me at the second half of verse six and we'll read through to verse seven. It says, and around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So you have God's throne at the center. We're talking about the ripple effects. You have God's throne at the center, then the 24 thrones around that throne, and then that, that next concentric circle out from that, You have these four living creatures kind of set up in four positions, just like the four points of a compass. And this is not the first time 
that these heavenly beings have shown up in the storyline of scripture. Isaiah, the prophet, caught a glimpse of these heavenly beings when he thought he was going into the earthly temple of God and then got to see into the heavenly throne room of God. And what did he see? He saw these glorious angelic beings standing before the throne of God, covering their faces with their wings because the glorious radiance of the holiness of God was too much for them to take in. And they were singing a similar song to what they're singing now. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then Ezekiel later saw these heavenly beings in his own vision. In Ezekiel 1, these living creatures seem to be uh, paired up at the four corners of the throne of God. And John sees them almost taking up the throne, which has wheels, and moving it out of Jerusalem. Because the glory of God was departing the temple because it had been defiled by their sin and their idolatry and their rejection of God and it was going in a different direction. Now others think that these are also some of the same angelic beings who were placed in the front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden with their flaming swords to guard the way to the Tree of Life. And then others postulate from that that these are the same angelic beings who are artistically represented and woven into the fabric of that curtain that separates the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And furthermore, these are the angelic beings that are represented as standing over the Ark of the Covenant, looking at the mercy seat of God. Well, as best as I can discern, and there are a myriad of views on these angels, as best as I can discern, these four living creatures are one of the highest order of angelic beings whose unique job is to constantly guard and glorify the holy presence of God. Wherever the holy presence of God, wherever God's presence specially manifests itself in the Bible, you see these angelic beings in the Garden of Eden, in the temple, and here in the throne room of heaven. Their job is to constantly guard and glorify the holy presence of God. And yet, in their visual characteristics, they also have another job. Their visual characteristics show that they are to symbolize and represent God's sovereignty over all aspects of creation, God's sovereignty and oversight over all created beings. And I think you see this in their number and in their likenesses, as John describes them. So the number four usually is symbolic of creation in its fullness or, or general creation as we understand it. So think of the four points of a compass, the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth, and how they're placed around the throne. But then think of their likeness, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Perhaps a lion stands for the greatest of the undomesticated creatures that God has made. And an ox, at that time, standing for the greatest of the domesticated creatures that God has made. An ox kind of being in service in a field. And a man stands for the greatest of God's intelligent creatures that he's made. Creatures he's made in his image. And then a bird, or the eagle, stands for the, the greatest of flying creatures that God has made. And so they represent in their number and in their likeness the, the fullness of God's oversight of all his created beings. And the fact that they are full of eyes, which it mentions at the beginning and kind of the end of this section, indicates that the all-seeing, omniscient God is always watching over all his creation. Nothing in creation escapes the gaze of the one on the throne. Well, some have pointed out that if you pair together the 24 elders which we've looked at and the four living creatures, it demonstrates two of the primary reasons why God alone is worthy of worship, why it's not about us and it's all about him. What are those two reasons? What's well, creation and new creation? It's the fact that God made all things 
and that he is making all things new. What, what Revelation is seeking to do is show how God is taking what he made at first, and he's making, it all thing, he's making all things new, and he's going to bring it back to its glorified, restored, perfected state, even better than it was in Eden. And we see that even represented here, that God is worthy of all worship because he is the one who made all things, and he is the one who is remaking all things. So the four living creatures, like a lion, an ox, a man, an eagle, demonstrate the appropriateness of the song that is sung in verse 11. Look there with me. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So think about when you go to visit Lion Country Safari, and you see a lion with its beautiful mane, its powerful legs, its strong jaws and teeth. God did that to display and demonstrate that he is glorious. Or when you see an eagle soaring in flight with its wingspan that would far surpass what you could stretch out to, and when you see its talons that are sharp and curved grab a fish out of the water that you didn't even know was there, God did that to demonstrate that and display that he is glorious in what he has made. If you want to grow in a God-centeredness, all you have to do is go outside and look around and look up. That's, you have all the fuel you need right there for a God-centered perspective. So when you go outside and you see that bright blazing sun 93 million miles away, 333,000 times the mass of the earth, and then you look across the street and you see that big banyan tree that kids can climb and play on, when you see that rabbit hopping across your yard next to that royal poinciana tree that's blooming in all its beauty, that is fuel for God-centeredness. God did that to say, it's not about you, it's all about me. He is good and glorious. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Well, if the four living creatures represent that God is worthy of worship because he created all things, then the 24 elders represent the fact that God is worthy of worship because he is recreating all things. He's making all things new. Because what does the church consist of? What, what is the people of God made up of? It's made up of people who, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's made up of people who were dead in their trespasses and sins. And when they were dead in their trespasses and sins, God, because he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. What does the people of God consist of? It consists of people who know this truth. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is all new creation language. God taking what had been ruined by sin and making it new again. I love, and again, I'm going to use a line witch in the wardrobe illustration, so bear with me. But in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when Aslan cracks the stone table and he comes back to life, what is the very next thing that he does? He goes and breathes on all the statues. He brings things to life. It's showing that the gospel is the beginning of new creation, that the, the lamb who was slain and risen is now making all things new, and he's giving life through that gospel power to others. That's what God does in our lives. New creation has started even now in our hearts when we embrace Christ by faith. And so when you contemplate your imperfection and your unrighteousness and you realize the guilt and shame that should hang over you and then you see Christ who is perfectly obedient in your place, who bore all your guilt and shame, taking all the legal demands of your sin and he set them aside, nailing them to the cross, God did that 
so that he could display the praise of his glorious grace to you, his new creational grace. The gospel message, the true story of Christmas, not that lie we're peddled with Santa and all those other things, the true story of Christmas is all about God doing for us the opposite of what we've done to him. That's what Christmas, Christmas is the great inversion. It's, it's the great invasion and the great inversion that God left his throne to do for us the opposite of what we have done to him. The God who created all things and made us in his image has borne with us patiently because we have tried to recreate a God-centered universe into a me-centered universe. All of our self-serving, all of our self-pleasing, self-focused thoughts, words, and deeds are forms of cosmic treason. Let's call sin what it is. Sin is the attempt of creatures to dethrone the creator. Sin is our attempts at dethroning God so we can enthrone self. The reason you struggle with unmet expectations, the reason you you get angry is because you're trying to build your little kingdom of self and people are coming into your orbit and they're not getting with the program. That's what's happening. And yet in response to all of our self-pleasing and self-serving rebellion, God sent his son to be a self-emptying redeemer. That's the story of Christmas. We try so desperately to make everything about us. He humbly made himself nothing. That's the story of Christmas. We foolishly try to take the place of God. Christ graciously came to take our place. That's the true story of Christmas. We, in our sin and selfishness, are grasping after God's throne. He took and was nailed to our cross. That's the true story of Christmas. Why did Christ do this? So that we could be forgiven of all of our false worship, which said, it's about me, it's not about him. And he came and he said, not my will, but yours be done so that we could be restored to the true worship of the true God, so that we could be forgiven of all of our cosmic treason, covered in white garments, seated on thrones, given golden crowns, that we can cast before him and say, it's not about me, it's all about him. We were made for God, and our hearts will be chaotic and confused and unsatisfied until we realize that God is the center. God is the only thing that has the gravitational force big enough and strong enough to orbit everything in our life in its proper balance. And when things are going chaotic, it's because we have either shrunk in the center or replaced the center. God is the only thing big enough, glorious enough, good enough, satisfying enough to keep everything in our life in its proper orbit. And so what we need to learn is how to live on earth as it is in heaven. And how is it in heaven? Heaven is a God-centered place. So as the earth is centered around the sun, so we are to be centered on God because heaven is a God-centered place. May God grant us such a Copernican revolution. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you'd help orient our hearts in the right direction, that you would teach us and put us in our place and know the goodness of that place. Would we be able to say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Lord, help us to center ourselves on you so that we can put everything else in its right orbit 
around you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please turn your attention to page eight of your bulletin? And we have a responsive conclusion that helps us to focus on what Revelation is about. It's about anticipating the coming of Christ who is making all things new. So I'll read the words in italics. Would you respond corporately with those words there in bold? He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Let's respond to this sermon we've just heard by turning to page 9 and 10 of your bulletin. And let's sing, O Worship the King. Would you stand with me?